українці більше ніколи не будуть камінчиками якихось там імперій. Ми вже вибороли це і забезпечимо для нашої держави всю повноту незалежності. Забезпечимо, зокрема, духовну незалежність. Ми ніколи і нікому не дозволимо будувати імперію всередині української душі. Владимир Путін може бути багато речей, але його історія не одна з них. Back in July 2021, Putin infamously published a 7,000-word article on the historical unity of Russia and Ukraine that was reportedly sent to every soldier in the Russian armed forces. Among Putin's claims were that Ukraine is, quote, entirely the brainchild of the Soviet era and was to a large extent created at the expense of historical Russian lands. Putin also argued that contemporary Ukraine is little more than a Western project designed solely to undermine Russia and liken Ukraine's post-Soviet nation-building efforts to weapons of mass destruction. The Kremlin leader also argued that true Ukrainian sovereignty is only possible in partnership with Russia. After all, we are one people. Now, all of these things, of course, are demonstrably wrong. But they are also widely believed by most Russians and until recently by many in the West. So how has this false historical narrative contributed to Russia's war against Ukraine? And how has the war and Ukraine's spirited defense of itself worked to change this? Well, I've got two real historians on the program today to help us unpack the battle for Ukrainian history. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Toronto, Canada is my old friend Martin DeChalk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and a CERES fellow at the University of Toronto. Welcome back to the podcast, Martin. Great to be here, Brian. Great to have you. And also joining us from downtown Washington is the one and only Jeff Bankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. Good to have you. In this program, I wanted to explore the battle over history between the false narrative uh, that Ukraine has always been an appendage of Russia and the correct narrative that Ukraine is an independent European nation with its own agency. And to prepare for this podcast, I actually did a little bit of math uh, looking at how Ukraine has been ruled, by whom and for how long. And here are the numbers. There's no spin here, no propaganda. There's going to be a little nuance, but these are the numbers. Stephen Rus, of course, existed from 879 to 1240. This is the, the this is the, the 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 entity that Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus all trace their origins to. We'll kind of bracket that out for the moment. We can dive back into into Kievan Rus in a minute. But after the after Kievan Rus is broken up by the Mongol invasion, Ukraine was part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania from 1240 to 1569. That's 329 years. 
After the, after the Grand Duchy of Lithuania merged with Poland and formed the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Ukraine was part of that entity from 1569 to 1795, or 226 years. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was broken up, and Ukraine became part of the Russian Empire in 1795 to 1917. That's 122 years. Um, in the brief period between the breakup of the, the Russian Empire and the um, and, and the founding of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had four years of independence, but it was a tumultuous four years when it, when it wasn't always completely in control. Um, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1991, or 69 years, and Ukraine has now been independent for a little over 31 years since 1991. Um, so if you add it all up, Ukraine was part of the... Uh, Poland or something kind of Polish or Lithuanian for 555 years, part of something Russian for 191 years, and completely independent for 35. If you do all that math, ruled for Moscow, 191 years, not ruled by Moscow, 590 years. So it's really not even close. And I did this to kind of to, to bust this myth. Um, that Ukraine has always been part of Russia. It has actually been not ruled by Russia for the the, the overwhelming majority of its history. Um, but nevertheless, this this persistent narrative that Ukraine's always been part of Russia has persisted. Marta, Marta, you correct the you teach the correct version of the history of the region at the University of Western Ontario. Why is this false version of history so prevalent? How much damage has this narrative caused, and how is it changing? Well, that's an excellent question, Brian. Most universities in the Western world have courses on Russian history. They're usually optional, and Russian history is taught as part of European history, which usually is compulsory for most history students. So the question is, how is the history of Russia taught, both as its own history and the history of Europe? And it's taught from the Russian historical narrative which was constructed during the Tsarist era, the official state history that Karamzin start, wrote the 12 volume work that was then fine-tuned by other historians, exported internationally. And that is the story of Russia that has been taught in all of our universities for uh, decades and probably even more than that. And that narrative says that Russia was started in the Kievan Rus period, which is why it's important. And then after the Mongol invasion, power went up to Moscow and Muscovy became the center of power. After that, they sort of started expanding and gathering their lands of Rus. They take the name Rus, call themselves Russia, and expand their empire to control Crimea and, and more. So that is the narrative that has been taught and that is has shaped the way people think about Russian history. And then the Russian Empire falls apart. It becomes the Soviet Union, in which people interchangeably say Russia, USSR, as if it was one in the same. And that's the mental map that has been created. And that's if you take a look at syllabi of any history course on Russian history in any Canadian American university, that's the chronology you'll see. So when Putin says Russia and Ukraine have always been together, and that's how you've been taught your history, it's not a stretch for you to believe that. Now, Ukraine has its own historical narrative, which also starts in the Kievan Rus period. But what it does is it looks at events that happened on the territory that is today Ukraine. So Kievan Rus, when princes 
adopt Christianity, fight against invaders, build cathedrals, uh, rule themselves until they start fighting too much amongst each other. And the Mongols come and cave loses its power as a center. And then what happens on the lands of Ukraine? Then others come, the Lithuanians, and then the Poles, and then the Cossack state emerges, and they make an alliance with Muscovy and the Petyaslav Treaty. That leads to a shift in the power balance in the south. The Crimean Tatar Khanid has been built. Uh, anyway, so Ukraine has a history that looks at what's happened on its own lands and what their people have been doing. And then in, when empires collapse, they try setting up their own states, both at the end of World War One, during World War II, finally succeed in 1991. So it's a very different perspective, but Ukrainian history is almost never taught in universities, and it almost never appears in history books or European history courses. And that is changing. And I think this Russia's aggression against Ukraine's war, it's trying to wipe Ukraine off the map, has had the absolute opposite effect because more people are interested in Ukraine. They want to know what's going on. So they're learning. They're starting to read about this. I designed the course on Russia's war against Ukraine. My enrollments are through the roof. I've never had so many students. I have almost 500 students and they keep coming. because they I don't want envy to you at exam time, Marcia. <laughs> <laughs> they want to know what's happening. And they're learning about Ukraine in a way that five years ago, people were not so interested. I was getting 100 students. And now that interest has grown. And so that is the opposite of what Putin wanted. Instead of erasing Ukraine's identity, he's drawing attention through his genocidal war to the fact that Ukrainians are different than Russians. And I think I'll let Jeff jump in here, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to bring Jeff into here because Jeff, you literally wrote the book on how imperial legacies drive uh, foreign policy in Russia and elsewhere. How central is this narrative, uh, the one that Marta just kind of spelled out for you? It's with basically a false narrative, and we're going to talk about how that got into the the Western bloodstream in a minute. But how is this false narrative that Ukraine's an appendage of Russia? How how important is this to Moscow's imperial ambitions? How how central is this? I, I think it's quite central. I mean, if you think about the emergence of Russia as a truly imperial power, uh, it really coincides with the absorption of the Ukrainian lands uh, during the partitions of Poland, uh, which come not long after Peter the Great proclaims the uh, formation of the Russian Empire. And this, you know, is kind of central to Russia's transformation into part of the broader European balance of power rather than this state that had much more linkages to the to the Turco-Mongol world. Um, and so the whole narrative of Russia's modernity and Russia's emergence as a great power in the European state system is very much linked to its consolidation of control in the Ukrainian lands. At the same time, there has always been um, a perception within the Russian elite uh, that this re that this consolidation of control in the Ukrainian lands was historically determined that it was actually a process of reunification rather than an act of imperial conquest. And so in the Russian narrative, it's understood very differently from, for instance, the expansion into the Caucasus or Central Asia, which are seen much more through the lens of traditional, you know, settler colonialism. Um, but the narrative around the absorption of Ukraine um, is much more about 
reviving this uh, legacy of Kievan Rus and Moscow kind of taking on the inheritance of Kievan Rus after uh, it was it was decimated. And so what you see throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th, and now with Putin in the 21st century in the Russian narrative is this portrayal of Ukrainian independence and Ukrainian identity as inauthentic, as something that's being created by foreign rival powers to undermine Russia's standing as a great imperial power. Now, the identity of the villain in this story shifts. Uh, so early on, it's Poland, right? Um, it's the Polish Schlachta, the, the nobility that's, you know, giving these East Slavic Orthodox peasants who are living on their estates ideas um, about who they are that suggests that they should associate themselves with Poland and, and with sort of Catholic Europe rather than with Russia and, and the Orthodox world. And that's actually where a big part of the kind of project of legitimating the Russian conquest comes from, right? It's this portrayal that the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth has become much more Polish-dominated. It's become much more under the thumb of the Counter-Reformation Catholic Church. And that what you're seeing is the erasure of the Orthodox East Slavic identity uh, of the people that we would call uh, Ukrainians. And so this push to kind of bring them under Muscovite control as a way of preserving the faith uh, against the expansion of, of Catholic influence. And this starts with the, um, the, um, the Union of Brest in 1596, when um, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth creates the uh, Greek Catholic or Uniate Church, which basically is part of the broader Catholic Church, but recognizes the Eastern Rite and is designed to um, you know, act as kind of a pathway for um, these Orthodox, uh, mostly peasants living in the lands of Ukraine and Belarus to um, you know, become part of the Catholic Church, to be Catholicized. And in response, there's this push, both within these lands and in uh, Muscovy, to, uh, you know, establish a protectorate of some kind to preserve the Orthodox um, identity. And so once this happens, then you start having publicists and intellectuals in the Russian Empire arguing that these attempts to create a separate identity to convince these people that they're something other than orthodox russians is some kind of foreign plot whether it's being driven by the catholic church and the polish schlachta in the uh 18th century uh later on after the partitions when there's the emergence of the strategic competition between the russian and austrian empires that culminates and rated towards uh the austrians and then today, you know, fast forward, there's a similar uh, kind of story. Uh, during World War II, it was the Nazis and the portrayal of Ukrainian nationalists as puppets of the Nazis. And then today it's NATO. Uh, that, you know, Ukrainian identity, that the idea of Ukraine as a separate state with a separate culture um, is something that Russia's enemies are ginning up as a way of putting pressure on Russia and keeping Russia divided and weak and rolling back its frontiers. So for all of those reasons, this has been a very important piece of the Russian historical narrative. And Putin is uh, very much in keeping with a tradition, with a Russian imperial tradition in terms of how he portrays and understands this relationship between Russia and Ukraine. 
Right. I mean, the interesting thing, Jeff, about the uh, when 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 you you say that Russia saw this as inevitable, and when you look at any this this reunif this so-called reunification, when you look at anything, I'm not a historian, but I know enough to know that whenever you say something was historically inevitable, that is an ahistorical statement. Right? Yeah. Nothing is historically uh, historically inevitable because people have agency, people make okay. choices, and those choices direct uh, determine where history goes. So, I mean, the the argument is just it's for lack of a better term, it's absurd on its face, right? Yeah, well, and there's contingency, right? I mean, things don't have to have turned out the way that they did. They turn on, you know, particular decisions, particular moments, accidents. Uh, I don't think anything or very few things in history are predetermined. And different periods in history influence what comes after in, in different ways. Um, we were talking before we got on uh, the recording about uh, our common acquaintance, Timothy Snyder, and in his book uh, on tyranny, Snyder talks about uh, what he calls the politics of eternity. And I think that's a really important concept in thinking about this relationship. Um, what Snyder means by the politics of eternity is this idea that there is that you don't have agency in history, that you're living in a sort of predetermined world and that what happens today is rooted almost inevitably in things that happened in the distant past. And that if you deviate from these historical models, if you deviate from these previous patterns or institutions, it's in some way illegitimate. Uh, the idea that you know history stopped uh, at some point and that everything that comes after it is just the re-creation uh, of these historical patterns. But in fact, it doesn't work that way. History never stops. It's continuing to unfold. And people living in the present have the same ability, the same agency to shape their environment and to shape their destinies that people living 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago did. And just because what's happening at one moment in time uh, was seen as legitimate then doesn't necessarily bind those who come after to regard it as legitimate in the same way. Right. Um, I want to dive deeper into uh, Kiev and Rus, the myths and the realities, the rise of Muscovy, the myths and the realities, the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which I think is the most understudied part of, of European history. But before I do, I want to kind of get out there how this Russian imperial narr historical narrative found its way into Western universities, in including North American universities. I mean, my understanding, you both, either of you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of how this happened was that after the 1917 revolution, the white Russians emigrated west. The white Russians weren't these like liberal Democrats. They were monarchists. Some of them were later became fascists. Um, but they brought with them this this historical this imperial history um many of them were academics and got jobs in american canadian universities um and european universities and were continuing to teach us the west believed them collectively because they weren't communists therefore they were the good they, they were the you know quote unquote good russians but what is this how is this your understanding of how this happened that's Mark, precisely or? what that's precisely what happened and a lot of the textbooks were written by people like Arya Sanowski, who is representative of exactly what you talked about. These are people who come from that Russian imperial historical tradition, and they can in the universities where they get jobs and they publish books, which become textbooks, which become the basis of how history is taught. And it's challenged by, I mean, Hrushevsky, who wrote the Ukrainian historical narrative, was unknown and largely continues to be unknown because right. there wasn't the, the equivalent of Ukrainian scholars 
getting jobs at Western universities and courses in Ukrainian history were few and far between, really, until very recently. And even today, if you look at any university uh, history department, how many courses on Ukrainian history will you find? You know, Russia outnumbers it 10 to 1, if not more. So that narrative was created. And now what's interesting is, again, since this escalation of war, since February 2022, there's a huge discussion among historians about decolonizing the way history is being taught. And happening uh, in ACES, it's happening in the University of Toronto, it's happening in a lot of places. Precisely the, the question that you're raising is how history has been taught, how should it be taught, and how we decolonize our approach to history. And those discussions are really interesting because people who teach Russian history they are being forced to rethink what they have been doing professionally for their entire careers. And that is not a comfortable place to be. Because I was yeah. involved in one private discussion, well, private, it was this association, we were having a discussion and we were talking about how Russian history should be retaught. And one person says, well, I teach Russian history and I'm not going to stop teaching it from Kiev and Rus because that's the way I've always taught it doesn't mean that this person isn't going to change the way she teaches Kiev and Rus, but it's just that was the first reaction. This is the way I've always taught it. This is where Russian history starts. No one's going to tell me to change my mind. So this is something that historians, it's, I mean, it's easy for people like me because it's basically saying, okay, listen to the narrative that I've been sharing my whole life. But if somebody said, okay, reconsider your version of Ukrainian history and think of Ukraine as, as an imperial state, which is ridiculous. That's that's what people who teach Russian history are being forced to do now. Yeah, no, and this is, I mean, much earlier in my career, this is a process I, you went through, you helped me through it, Marta, when we met each other in the 90s, and I came in with this very Russo-centric view of things. The other thing I, I would note that is that Canada has done, Canadian universities have done a lot better than American universities on this. The only thing I can attribute this to is that proportionally there are more Ukrainians in Canada. Is that is that is it that simple, Marta? Well, that's one part of it. The other is we have a different education system. So our higher education is publicly funded. We don't have the two-tiered private public system. Um, but Harvard University is actually one of the first places that introduced Ukrainian studies. Mm -hmm. So, and that was because a few Ukrainian professors who were refugees uh, managed to get jobs, the Milan Pritzak and old guy, was a Byzantinist. Uh, I'll think of his name. They're the ones who first started talking about Ukrainian history at Harvard. And that led to the creation of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, which is in the United States, the premier institution. And the Canadian institutions came after that. Okay, okay. But you, they okay. got a lot more public funding. Right. So they, and also they grew more quickly. Right, so we're in Harvard, they had to raise private money. Yeah, okay, that makes Correct. sense. Yeah, Jeff, you and I both went through, we both learned this uh, incorrect version of Russian history and, and, and had to kind of go through our own intellectual journey to get to get to the place we're at now. How, how do you see this, 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 this issue? Anything to add to what Marta was saying? Uh, well, I would just say that it's, 
something that's happening in a maybe belated way uh, with Russian history, but it's a challenge that I think has faced the historical profession really across the board. Uh, we talk about it a lot in the context of studying American history, right? Like giving voice to various subaltern communities that have been written out of the traditional narrative around American history, whether that's African Americans, whether that's Native Americans or what have you. You know, this idea of decolonizing history of states that we don't necessarily think of as empires is um, is an important development in the historical profession, but one that has come about uh, rather belatedly. And I think, uh, you know, with Russia is coming around uh, even more belatedly than it was in the in the case of the United States. Um, and, you know, to get to, to some of the themes I raised in, in the book that you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of other countries that are ripe for this treatment too. You know, I think decolonizing the history of China uh, would be a, an important historiographic project as well. And it's one that, you know, you've seen some elements of, and I'm certainly not an expert in Chinese historiography, um, but, you know, there have been uh, attempts, especially with the Qing, the last uh, Chinese imperial dynasty, to write about it not as a Chinese dynasty, but as an inter-Asian conquest dynasty and to really link it to um, the the culture and the tradition of the Manchus who uh, comprised it. So I think this is an important development across the study of history writ large. Um, and it's important that it's happening now uh, with Russia in parallel to uh, what's happening with a lot of these other uh, places. I think it'll be really important to when this uh, approach to studying the history of Russia actually comes to Russia. Um, and that, I think, is, is the biggest challenge. You know, when it comes to things like the decolonization of American history, this is obviously a very politically charged issue in the United States. But I think the historical profession in the U.S. has been at the forefront of efforts to do that, right, and to, you know, create courses and programs on Native American history and on the history of, of immigrant communities and, and that sort of thing. Russia has a long, long way to go. Uh, as an academic community to do the same thing. And this process, I think, has to start in the West for obvious political reasons, um, but it'll have succeeded when it actually makes its way into the Russian Academy as well. Yeah, when that happens, we're going to be indeed be in a very, very different place than than, than we are now and probably a much better one. Before we sh <clears throat> shift into the second half and talk about how the war has accelerated all of these processes. I did want to just dig into a couple of things um, in terms of myths and realities about Kiev and Rus, the rise of Muscovy, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I mean, it's, I'm just going to hit, hit each of these briefly for, for the sake of time. But in terms of Kiev and Rus, I mean, my understanding is that this was they were it was Vikings and Hazars. There were no Russians or no Ukrainians as we understand them today on the territory of of, of Kiev and Rus. The, everybody gets the, the the word Rus kind of throws everybody because they kind of associate it with Russia, um, but Rus was actually, in my understanding, a Viking word. The prince that was uh, may or may not have uh, been baptized in um in in the, in the 10th century. Um, was he was named Valdemar? He was a Viking. The Ukrainians call him Volodymyr, and the Russians call him Vladimir. Um, but he was his his name even was a was a Viking name. Marta, you you have some thoughts on Ukraine and Kiev and Rus and its significance and how we should look at this. The way I do it is I kind of bracket it out and say three states trace their origin to this thing, but there were not Russians, Ukrainians, nor Belarusians at this time on this territory. It was um, that developed later. Um, how, how do you look at it? What do you think we should know? 
Well, we need to look at this period because that's where the origin stories are traced to. That's where the name, that's where Russia took its name from, right? So we can't took ignore its name it. is the operative word because it was yeah. Okay. So we can't we can't not look at Kiev in Rus because that is really the beginning of sort of the history as we know it. Now I'm not an expert in this period. Uh, the general points I would like to make is first of all there are very few records from this period. So as historians we don't have a whole lot to work with. So that's one issue. Second issue is, is that Ukrainian, Russian or Belarusian origin story? Well, people back then did not think in terms of nation, right? Right. Nations are modern construct. So that's the second thing. And this is true for any origin story right. because people didn't think in those terms a thousand years ago. The third thing is the history of Kiev and Rus. It's a combination of local people encountering people who pass through. So the Vikings come down the Dnipro River and they try going down the Volga River. Why? Because they're looking for trade routes. They're trying to get to Byzantium and the Arab markets. And they're coming down the river and they see a place called Kiev. It wasn't called Kiev. That we don't know what it was called back then. They like it. They settle. And that's a nice place. I would have liked it too. So uh, they bring the word Rus with them. Again, there's lots of discussions about where it actually comes from. And the naming of Kiev, a legend says it's these three brothers, Case, Jack, Lodov, and their sister Libby. Again, we don't know if that's true or not. That's the legend. But what we do know is there were Slavic tribes living on the territory of what is modern Ukraine, modern Russia, modern Belarus. And we do know that these cities existed, Kiev, Novgorod, others. And the Vikings came and they built this civilization that becomes Kiev and Rus. And that's where Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, they trace their origin story back to this era, partly because it was glorious. I mean, anybody who's been to Kiev, this is when those cathedrals are built. And Kiev in the Kiev and Rus period in the 11th century is grander than Paris. You know, the story of right. Princess Anne. Yaroslav, the wisest daughter, gets married off to the king of France. And she arrives and she speaks four languages and knows mathematics. And her husband, the king of France, can't read. And she writes to her father saying, oh, this town is so small and dingy. So our perceptions of, you know, this was a grand civilization, which is part of the reason there's such a fight over the legacy. So this is a really important period in history, but again, the sources are scanty. And Moscow at this time, and there's this wonderful Twitter uh, yeah, thing that I'm sure lots of people have seen, is, you know, this is Kiev in the 10th century, this is Moscow in the 10th century, because Moscow is just a small town and it doesn't actually it's not appear. It's barely, it's barely a small town. Well, but it only appears in the Chronicles for the first time in, I think, 1145 or right. something like this. At this point, Ukraine has already got, like, you know, Queen Princess Anne is the Queen of France and so on and so forth. So the ancientness of that and the grandness of that civilization is very appealing for an origin story. Right? Like, if you're going to start your history in Moscow and you know the muscovites are tax collectors for the golden horde well, and then they build their empire versus 
you know, we are the grand princess and blah, blah, blah. You know, where would you choose to start your historical narrative? Obviously, in the grand Kiev and Rus period and not in Muscovite. Sort of, you you yeah. raised you raised Ivan the first or Ivan Moneybags who is the 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 the, 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 the Grand Prince of of, of Muscovy who uh, and this is how Muscovy grows from being from my from my understanding just a little crossroads where two princes happened to meet and they called it Moscow um, to a, a village to later the the imperial city that it was it began with Ivan the first mm-hmm. becoming the tax collector for the Golden Horde, and that allowed it to basically build up wealth and and, and eventually conquer its neighbors. Jeff, anything to add on, on, on either Kievan Rus or the rise of Muscovy? Because I wanted to touch on that as well. Yeah, I think the point that Marta made about the lack of ethnic identification in this period is really important, right? Because the population of these regions had a significant East Slavic component. Um, they weren't the only people who lived there. You know, you mentioned Khazars, who, as far as we can tell, were Turkic-speaking. Um, there were the these Vikings who were coming down and eventually established their rule. And so the idea that, you know, either Russians or Ukrainians as an ethnic nation, you know, have their origins in this period is, is historically anachronistic. Um, Kievan Rus, like medieval states all over the place, was a political entity that was based on loyalty to a particular ruler or a ruling house. Um, The main driver of identity uh, wasn't ethnicity or language, it was religion. Uh, So, you know, Kievan Rus and then subsequently uh, Muscovy uh, are important uh, for their role as outposts of the Orthodox Church and their identity uh, as Orthodox. And this becomes a really important component of the then later struggle for primacy within this region between Moscow and Kiev, who gets to claim uh, the metropolitan and then later the patriarch, where is the the center of the Orthodox Church in this part of the world located? Uh, that was really the, the key component here. Um, as far as the rise of, of Muscovy goes, I, I think the only thing I would add to, to the story you told is that you know, Moscow is in the forests, and that gave it some insulation from the nomadic uh, tribes that were part of the the various Mongol and, and post-Mongol uh, confederations that were controlling much of the steppe region further south in the early medieval period. And that insulation from uh, the nomadic horsemen is one of the reasons that Moscow had a, an advantage geopolitically. It had the economic advantage in terms of being the, the tax collector for the Golden Horde, which is the main Mongol successor in this region, but also because it was less militarily uh, vulnerable than places further south on the steppe. The other thing I would add... Sorry, was, I would just uh, add Moscow chose to be the tax collectors, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're, we're talking about agency because... They were, they were, they were enthusiastic. they enthusiastically the chose to be the tax yeah, collectors. Yeah, it's not like they, they were given... The, so other realms of old Rus, they paid tribute. Right. Um, right. But they like did Dolkara some grudging, whereas right. Muscovy actually... Well, this is the one of my thesis. So Russia began as a protection racket. That's the way I can. I like to characterize it. Russia began as a protection racket, and it continues to be a protection racket uh, to 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 this day. Um, Charles Bailey would have something to say about this. I mean, it's kind of the origin of most states, right? Is that yeah, that's where states come from. 
Right, right. No, but it's it's. I mean, I it, it is. I mean, one of my favorite historical what ifs was what if Novgorod had emerged as the dominant state and not Muscovy, right? That we would be living in a very very different world right now. Obviously, yeah, um, and and that didn't get resolved until the age of Ivan the Terrible in the 16th right, century. Right, right. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, the way I look at this, uh, and historians feel free to correct me. Um, and with some caveats here, um, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was the most powerful European state of its time, right? Um, it was for its time, with the caveat that, yes, the Poles were horrible to the Ukrainians and to the Lithuanians at times. But with that caveat, it was a more pluralistic political entity for that time than, 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 than many others. Um, and it was the European state of that time. Martha, how important is the fact that Ukraine was part of this this is like the beginning of Ukraine's European history in that in, in a modern sense. Um, I, I I think that's a pretty big deal, actually. What, what what do you think? Well, you're right, but I would stretch it back to not the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but the Lithuanian period. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania, right? Like Lithuania is the first uh, power that comes to the lands of Rus, the 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 lands of Ukraine after. Kiev is destroyed as the political capital, the power that moves in is Lithuania. And when we think of Lithuania today, this tiny little country, it used to be this huge empire. And when it comes to control the territories of what is a lot of modern day Ukraine, they're actually a very benevolent power because they adopt a lot of the practices of the Rus princes. They adopt Christianity, they adopt the legal code, a lot of the practices so basically, they come in and let the system run as it used to be, and they absorb parts of it. And then when Lithuania and Poland make a, an agreement, first it's a dynastic link, and then it turns into a commonwealth, uh, things change a little bit, and the power shifts, and Poland becomes more powerful. And through a treaty, they agree that basically Lithuania controls what is modern-day Belarus, and Poland controls what is modern-day Ukraine. And that's when things start to change for the people who are living on the lands of Ukraine. Again, they're still not calling themselves Ukrainian at this point. But that's when the Polish nobility, the Shlachta, they start taking over large parts of the land. And the peasantry is Orthodox and the middlemen are Jews. So you've got this volatile mix. And this is where the Cossack movement emerges in central Ukraine, and who are they fighting against? It's against the Polish nobles and the Polish king, right? So there, it's a complicated relationship because some of them are actually registered Cossacks, so they are in the military service of the Polish king, and others are fighting against them. So it's very, it's a compl complex history, but I think what we always want to remember is this concept of agency that you have uh, raised before. Because what we see in 1648 is Bogdan Khmelnytsky leads a big uprising, which becomes the largest peasant uprising in Eastern Europe. And that's what leads to the creation of the Cossack Hetmanate state. And if we fast forward to the present, when Ukrainians are unhappy about something, they rebel. Yes, right? they do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but they this, do. Is, this, is, this is, we see this historically. Right? And that's why the Cossack era is such an important part of Ukraine's national history and mythology is because 
this is an example of a very successful large rebellion. So what Ukrainians are doing when they're standing up for themselves now, um, you know, this is something I argue in a book that I'm just finishing up or have just finished, is they've been doing this for centuries. This isn't anything new. So when someone pushes on Ukraine, whether it's a foreign invader or a corrupt president, people stand up and say no, and they rebel and they stand up for themselves. This is part of how Ukrainians, that's what they say, this is our national character. Right. Jeff, anything to add to that before we move into the second part? I'm looking at the clock, but we started, but yeah, we're good. Um, Yeah, just on on the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So that political entity has received typically very little coverage in the study of European history. And I think that's unfortunate for some of the reasons that, that Marta discussed. I think there's a few other things that it's important to keep in mind about it. So one, not only today is Lithuania a small state in northeastern Europe, but Lithuania, the Lithuanian language is a Baltic language that's not related to the Slavic languages that are spoken in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And Lithuanians are mostly Catholic. Now, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is this much bigger state that encompassed a lot of modern Belarus and Ukraine, the dominant language was East Slavic. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as old Ukrainian or old Belarusian. Ruthenian, right? Yeah, and this is the other thing that I wanted to get to, which is the people who lived here, to the extent that there was a common term to describe them, it was the Latinized version is Ruthenian, but Ruthenian is Latinized version of Rus. So the people who are living here call themselves Rus, just as the people living in Muscovy called themselves Rus. Now, sometimes you see it written with, you know, Rus, R-U-S, with one S instead of Russia with two S's in, in the north. But, you know, they're regional dialectical variations, but it's basically the same word that they're using to talk about themselves. And so there is this sense that the people who comprise the Grand Duchy of Lithuania are, in a sense, the lineal successors of, you know, Kievan Rus. And when you get to you know this period of of the hetmanate and there's the um the very contested agreements that are signed at the end of the Khmelnytsky rebellion that allow uh muscovy to establish some kind of protectorate over um the hetmanate and the nature and and meaning of these agreements is, is deeply disputed but the two sides that is the hetmanate proto-Ukrainians, whatever we want to call them, on the one side, and the Muscovites on the other, they both speak East East Slavic languages, but they can't understand each other in the negotiations. They need interpreters. So already by this point, the languages have diverged to such an extent that the historical trajectories of, you know, the northeastern part of historic Kievan Rus, which, you know, later becomes Muscovy and, and the Russian Empire, and the southwestern part, which later becomes the Hetmanate and, and Ukraine, their trajectories have already diverged in really important ways by the 17th century. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that even in this period, there is this tension and this competition over which of these entities is the lineal and legitimate successor to Kievan Rus. 
All right. Well, that's a good way to segue into the second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at how Russia's war against Ukraine has inadvertently advanced a more correct version of history and undermined Putin's efforts to control the historical narrative. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Toronto, Canada, is my old friend Martin Dechok, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES fellow at the University of Toronto. Also joining us from downtown Washington is Jeff Benkoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Um, you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at least for now, at Power Vertical. Це очевидно для всіх, що таке Україна, що таке присутність нашого прапору. Коли є український прапор, є цивілізованість, є свобода, є соціальне забезпечення, є інфраструктура, є безпека, є кому дбати про людей, є все те, що зникає, що руйнують, коли приходять окупанти. So the historical narrative about Ukraine has actually been changing for decades in U.S. universities and credit where credit is due, Canadian universities have been getting it right for much longer. But in recent decades, scholars like Serhii Plotke at Harvard and Timothy Snyder at Yale have drawn on the work of the great Ukrainian historian Mikhailo Khrushchevsky to correct the historical record and very importantly in this age of social media to popularize it, something Khrushchevsky obviously could not do in his time. But Russia's unprovoked aggression into, uh, has turned Ukraine into, into an international cause celebrity and has, has had the knock-on effects of how we understand history. Timothy Snyder's online course on Ukrainian history at Yale, for example, has been made available free of charge to all. Um, which is a, a, a pretty amazing thing. All you need to do is just get on YouTube, which is something I highly rock, recommend, and watch it. I want Jeff and Mark to just, I want to kind of have a, just in the, with the time we have left, kind of have a little bit of a freewheeling discussion on how you think the war, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, has inadvertently helped advance the more correct historical narrative. How is the, and we've talked about this a little bit in the first half, but like the direct effects of the war on this, how are you seeing this? I guess I'll start with you, Marta. How do you, how do you see the, the direct effects? You mentioned your enrollment in your classes. Um, do you see other ways that this is really accelerating processes that had already begun? Absolutely. Uh, we can start with media attention. Uh, Ukraine was one of the top stories throughout 2022. So I had more requests for media interviews than ever before in my life. And so did anybody else who is a Ukraine expert. So there is an increase in interest in Ukraine. Therefore, the world got to learn a lot more about Ukraine through media reporting because universities, let's face it, that's a very small part of society. So I'm excited about having 500 students, but that's only 500 students. When you appear on national media, you're reaching millions of people. So the media exposure of this horrible war 
has led to more information about Ukraine in the public sphere that I think has had a tremendous impact on the way people are thinking about these issues. And I've noticed this even in the tones of the questions, the, the substance of the questions that I've been receiving from journalists and the tones of conversations from my colleagues who study things like, uh, you know, gender history in Canada or, you know, political philosophy. I know a little bit about Ukraine, but their questions have changed. And it's no longer focusing so much on Russia, it's focusing on Ukraine. So that the, the interest has really shifted as a result of this. And whereas, you know, we see this in the way the big stories being reported. If we think back to like a year ago, January of 2022, before the escalation, a lot of stories would start with President Putin said, or in Moscow, the, it was always what Moscow is doing. And then it shifted to what mm. Zelensky is saying and what's happening in Ukraine and getting Ukrainian voices in that story. And I think that's had a tremendous impact in the way people think, even things like uh, journalists no longer say Kiev, they struggle to say cave. <laughs> and, you know, I could hear them struggling, Lviv and Kharkiv, right. you know, like they the pronunciations have become Ukrainian, not Russian. And this whole, it's not a, the key issue, but it's not the Ukraine, it's Ukraine, right? It's no longer presented as a region, it's presented as an entity of in its own. And that again changes how people think, but this is all driven by the actions of people in Ukraine, mm. right? Like people like me and Jeff, and we're just magnifying what they're doing. They're the ones that are actually driving these changes. And this goes back to this discussion of agency that that, that, that we, we we had um, earlier on. Yeah, and you see it from, you know, we've all seen the Ukrainian flags everywhere. There's probably more Ukrainian flags in Washington right now than there are American flags. Um, but not only in Washington. I mean, I, I last time I was down in Texas, there were Ukrainian flags everywhere. And I was doing media interviews with local TV stations uh, in Dallas, uh, you know, and, and um, so there's this, there is this, um, this interest. Jeff, what do you, what else do you see? going on or what would you add to this i think that the idea of ukraine as a european state has really emerged much more strongly over the course of the last year um ukraine since independence has you know developed a political culture that is more western leaning and more european in terms of its emphases than the one that exists in Russia. Um, and even under Viktor Yanukovych, the very corrupt oligarchic president who was in power um, from 2010 to, to 2014, was pushing to deepen trade, economic and political links with Europe. Um, Europe encouraged that, but I think there was always a kind of of skepticism uh, about Ukraine. I think there is a tendency to refer to Ukraine as a post-Soviet country, uh, even though it wasn't part of Russian-led post-Soviet integration structures like the CIS or the Eurasian Economic Union, right? This idea of its post-Sovietness was really the, the dominant lens through which much of the conversation around Ukraine uh, was done, or was conducted. I think since the war started, there's a greater uh belief 
in a lot of Europe about Ukraine's basically European identity. And in part, this is sympathy from uh, the consequences of the war. I think in part, it's a consequence of the large movement of Ukrainian refugees into European countries, especially into Poland. Um, it's the, the higher dominance that the Ukraine has had on the agenda for the media and, and for politics. Um, and I think as a result, the belief that Ukraine has a European as opposed to a Eurasian or post-Soviet future is much more uh, consolidated now in, in large parts of Europe than it was. So you've seen, you know, the EU officially declare Ukraine uh, a candidate for membership. This is a largely symbolic statement insofar as the, the prospects of Ukraine meeting the criteria for inclusion and then getting the support of the rest of the members is, remains a long, long way off. But I think as a as a, an indicator, as a as a marker for where uh, the bulk of, of Europe sees Ukraine going in the future, it's important. Similarly, uh, conversations about Ukraine and NATO are now becoming more uh, pronounced. And even somebody like Henry Kissinger, who in the 1990s was one of the key voices uh, arguing that Ukraine should be uh, made neutral, should be you know, Finlandized, um, is now basically making the case that there's no alternative to an eventual uh, path into NATO for Ukraine. And then the military cooperation that now is really ramping up with a number of European states pushing very hard to supply advanced weaponry, um, including main battle tanks, uh, to Ukraine, uh, not only is important in symbolic terms, but it's important in the sense of actually getting Ukrainians trained on these Western style systems in a way that's going to promote interoperability. It's going to build relationships with defense industries and militaries in ways that are going to endure over time. And so the tightening of these linkages and the, the growing sense in a lot of Europe that Ukraine is a European state and has a future in Europe, I think is really, really important as well. Yeah, that's an excellent point. If I could just jump in, yeah, Kissinger sure. was still saying all that stuff in 2022. He's just recently shifted. So that's, I think, an indication of how what Ukrainians are doing is shifting the narrative in even people who were not. I mean, I'm waiting for Mearsheimer to shift his narrative. Yeah, but, no, don't, don't hold your breath. But where I think the point of, that you made about Europe, Jeff, which is excellent, uh, what this conversation is doing to link it back to history is now that people are starting to think of Ukraine in a European context as opposed to a post-Soviet context, this is where they learn about history and say, oh, well, wait a second, Ukraine has always been part of European right. history. And what Brian was saying that Russia has incorporated it into its own history, that that's being sort of blown away because that is not actually historically accurate. And as you pointed out at the beginning, it's not been that long in terms of a thousand years of history, but also parts of Ukraine have only been under Russian slash Soviet influence for, you know, since 1945. I mean, Western Ukraine was never right. part of the Russian Empire and it was never, you know, it was only part of the Soviet Union. So that European tradition culture experience that's been western ukraine and that's why western ukraine has traditionally been a little different from the rest of ukraine because they've only had 
you know, 45 years of this Russian slash Soviet uh, influence, as opposed to other parts of Ukraine where it's been a bit longer. This is interesting. It's going in places I hadn't anticipated. But what I'm hearing from both of you is about how the facts on the ground are changing due to Ukrainian agency. Um, and that is leading to a change in the narrative back to the correct narrative. I mean, I think it's no accident that two of Ukraine's biggest supporters in Europe at this time are Poland and Lithuania, to go back to the Commonwealth, right? Um, and again, I, I know this comparison is flawed, but I kind of think of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as the Europe of its time, if you will. It was the biggest, most powerful state in Europe at that time. And it's it's um, it's the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is not coming back. But mark my words, Ukraine will be a member of the European Union in our lifetimes. Um, we will see that happen. Um, and that will bring it back to, to the end. The, the, the last thing I wanted to touch on as I'm looking at the clock um, is uh, this concept of Ukraine and the end of empire. Um, I'm, I'm planning on giving a public lecture on this topic um, in um, at, at UTA uh, later this month. Uh, but this 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 notion that if, as it appears likely, Ukraine is successful in this war, this could spell the end of the Russian empire. Russia without Ukraine cannot be an empire, um, even in their own minds cannot be an empire. I can't help but recall a conversation I had with a Russian official back in the 90s about the decision to uh, to, to break up the Soviet Union in December 1991. And he said to me the decision was made after the Ukrainian uh, independence referendum. And I said, why? Naively, I asked at the time, why? And he said, in Russian, he said, what kind of a union can we have without Ukraine? So, I mean, is it something, it's it's not just a historical narrative that is changing right now, but history itself. We have seen this repeated cycle of Russian imperial decline and then revival. Um, we've seen this movie a couple of times. Putin's trying to do the, the, the part three, I think, uh, right now. Um, is this going to, does this put a, does this put a punctuation mark on all this, Jeff? I think it was the the great historian uh, Yogi Berra who said, "Predicting is hard, especially the future." Um, I will say this: you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski famously said that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be a great Eurasian empire. And I think if Russia is forced to confront the reality that it has lost Ukraine for good, and that Ukraine is pursuing a different political destiny, Russia is going to be a very different place from. The one that it is and that we've gotten used to it being. I don't necessarily think that the loss of Ukraine entails the end of Russia's imperial drive, if you will, or demiurge. Um, look at the North Caucasus, look at uh, places like Tatarstan, which still have a very kind of imperial connection to the powers that be in Moscow. I do think that in the event of a lost war, there's going to be substantial centripetal pressure placed on the government in Moscow, which may or may not at that point be led by, by Vladimir Putin, uh, to devolve power and authority away from the center. And that process could happen in a more consensual way, it could happen in a more conflictual way, or it could happen in a more chaotic way. Uh, depending how that process plays out, you could end up in very different end states. I do think that in the event of Russia really losing this war, they're going to face uh, substantial pressure from the North Caucasus, from Tatarstan, from Yakutia, from other places whose populations and leadership feel 
they have been uh, subordinated into a basically imperial relationship to Moscow. But how far that process of pushing back goes and whether it leads to a fundamental shift in the constitution of the Russian state is really hard to see at this point. It could go that way, but it also could, you know, lead to a sort of a more kind of federal Russia. Right. Uh, but even then, I think that's a substantial progress over where we are now. Yeah, no, I'm 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 watching carefully a lot of these scholars and analysts who are predicting the breakup of the Russian Federation at the end of this war. I and these are again scholars and analysts whom I I, I deeply respect, but I I'm afraid people are getting a little ahead of their skis on this right now, actually. But uh, but but for for a lot of different reasons that are going to be the subject of a whole podcast at some point, actually. So, but we're bumping up against the end here. So I'll give the last word to Marta. Marta, is Ukraine going to be the slave? of an empire well <laughs> i think uh that's a question everybody's thinking about and imperialism is uh, lots of different things and what putin's doing is he's engaging in 19th century imperialism right uh but you read the literature on imperialism there's you know, American cultural imperialism, and there's all sorts of different kinds of imperialism that are effective. I would argue that what Putin is pursuing is an ineffective form of imperialism. So I don't think he's going to succeed. But imperial thinking will continue, both in Russian minds and in other people's minds. So I think the challenge is what form it will take and what kind of reaction the world will have against it. Because I don't think that imperialism is going to disappear anytime soon. Now, Russia's capacity to exercise power, I think, is limited. But shrinking, and there's a really interesting piece in recently about Russia's economic power already shrinking. And the fact that its resources, its economy, it's, you know, it's a petrostate, it's a criminal petrostate, and their resources are in the non-European part of Russia. So if there's some sort of federalization, that's going to lead to decline in profits for the Moscow elite and so on. So there's lots of different dimensions of what's going to happen down the road. There's no question in my mind that it, things will be very different when this is all over. But... Um, what I hope for is, you remember the early 90s, there were Democrats in Russia who wanted well, no empire. Who said they were Democrats, but yeah. Well, <laughs> they wanted to build a democratic Russia that was not an empire, that was prosperous and a good international citizen. And I just want to see those people back in power if they still exist. Yeah, the problem is Putin wants to party like it's 1815, and the problem is it's 1923. Um, no, I, 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 I have gone from being, you remember me in the early 90s, Mark, to the biggest Russia optimist, and I have become a, diametrically uh, a pessimist. And the closer I look at the democratic experiment of the early 90s, the more I see that the, um, let's just say, Russian liberalism stopped at the Ukrainian border. 
On that note, we will wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Toronto, Canada has been my old friend, Martin Dechuk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and the CER. RES Fellow at the University of Toronto. And joining us from downtown Washington has been the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I got my copy. You should get yours. Let's all help Jeff sell some books. I'd also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a whole lot smarter. Oh, thanks, Brian. Jeff, great to talk to you. Same here. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holbert handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at least for now, at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.